record to there we go record to my computer uh you sound great how do i sound yep you're coming through loud and clear oh there we go and i have uh hopefully plenty of coffee there you go i got my iced tea we'll see how it goes (laughs) well how have you been long time i'm good i'm good i'm great i am uh close there we go um been doing great you know met you in in uh january and uh or february and then um he lost (laughs) he lost the election it happens so so obviously more people know about texas now since you ran had you run for anything else before yeah, back in uh, in 2012, okay. uh, I ran for state rep uh, right here in my district against a, a guy who had uh, the session before or the cycle before had flipped from Democrat to Republican and spent the entire next session voting exactly the same way that he did before. Yeah, that happened in the district that I grew up in too. Chuck Hobson was my state rep growing up, and he went from Democrat to Republican, as did many. Right. It was kind of a facilitated fake red wave. It, it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit sketch. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But, uh, it was a money deal. Well, that's the way it is, you know, for most of these guys, um, you know, in, in all the years that I have dealt with the elected guys, the longer they stay in the legislature, the worse they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of it really is about, um, they, they unpeg from their principles and it's really all about political expediency. And that's, it's one of the reasons that we're in the trouble that we're in, why they become, you know, after three, four, five sessions, they become so pliable to outside interest and turn a deaf ear to their constituents. Uh, it's, you know, one of the reasons that we do what we do. And I mean, obviously you're talking about term limits. I'm a big term limit um, advocate. I just, you know, it's you, you serve and then you, you, yeah. you create something, you serve, and then you go on to other pastures, maybe not greener pastures the way that all these, uh, ladies and gentlemen are trying to do. And when you talk about, um, when you talk about political expedience, you're talking about the influence and you're talking about being behind the scenes and not being very transparent. You know, we experience that in every, even local organizations and that's corrupt in my opinion. Well, it is. And look, one of the, one of the big rationales for, for Texas, right. One of the things that, that I find personally most appealing is after spending so many years beating my head up against the wall, um, <laughs> is that, is that it really, and not on the Texas issue, that's been the, by far the easiest thing, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, beating our head up against the wall, dealing with these recalcitrant, you know, a, a purportedly elected officials, it, what, what you find is, that, um, you know, part and parcel of the, the problem, uh, the, the reason that these guys get by with what they do is, the, is a lack of attention, right? So we're inundated with a 24-hour news cycle that focuses everyone's attention on the circus in Washington, D.C. So, you know, one thing that I, I explain to people when they ask about, you know, how are we going to get better? How does Texas deliver better government here? Is, is I, I offer them an exercise. I say, go down the street in, in your town. Pick a hundred random people and ask them this question. Who is the current speaker of the house? Okay. Now you're going to have to probably ask a lot of people 
to even get somebody who would even venture a guess, mm-hmm. right? But but get a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. I would venture a guess and say 98 to 99 out of that 100 will answer Nancy Pelosi and none of them almost will name Dade Phelan. Yeah. And that really is the problem. I mean, look at turnout in municipal races or local races or any of the down ballot stuff, the federal issues suck all the oxygen out of the room. And so, because all the attention is drawn there, our guys get to campaign one way and govern another and don't feel like they have to be representative of the people that they serve. So, uh, you know, Texas fixes a lot of that by eliminating the federal well, government. And that's, you know, funny that you bring that up. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about um, mansion and um, cinema making the decisions that they're making. And they're talking about this particular person um, was trying to make the case that they need to make decisions for the rest of the nation. And I said, no, I said, they need to make decisions for the people that they represent. And I said, that's the problem is that we all look to DC. We don't take care of our own houses. We don't take care of local first. And here in San Antonio, it is horrible. We have not been paying attention. And that's kind of my theme for this year is that you've got to pay attention. And there's not enough of us that are making enough people pay attention. This new, um, not new, but the fact that we don't have a free press anymore. We have to to rely on citizen journalism the way that we're sitting here right now. Um, So the biggest, the biggest question that I have for you is is Texas secession? Yeah, it's it's interesting because if you go back to uh, to tw- and and I got to tell you, it's one of my one of my favorite questions from an academic perspective. Okay, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if if you go back to say the book that I wrote back in in 2011 called Line in the Sand, uh, you're going to see me continually refer to it uh, using the word secession. Uh, and, and frankly, not a lot has changed since 2011, other than the fact that you never stop being a student, right? And the issue of self-determination continues to evolve. So, you know, we have to remember, and this is kind of a long answer to your question, but okay. I think it's important that everybody understand yeah. this, right? Mm-hmm. So contextually speaking, we have to remember that the very concept of a nation state in the history of mankind is, is relatively new. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, you can go back to the 17th century to a handful of treaties that really kind of set the ball rolling for our current concept of a nation state. Uh, you, you can understand this confusion when you talk to people and ask them, tell me the difference between nation, state and country. They mm-hmm. People use those words interchangeably. Right. Um, but you go to say something like the Declaration of Independence of the 13 colonies. Uh, you see Thomas Jefferson very explicitly talk about that all 13 colonies are now states on the same level as the state of Great Britain, right? He yeah. referred yeah. to it very specifically as the state of Great Britain. So you begin to see that formation of the idea of, of a, a nation state, at least here, okay? mm-hmm. particularly in, in the context of, of what they were developing as far as a system of government. So you know, you, you move through the rest of the 19th century, you get to the Civil War, you hear talk of secession, and then you, you know, rocking along into the first uh, half of the 20th century, you see more conscious effort on the part of everyone in the world to come to grips with what, uh, what a nation state is. <clears throat> but you can't have the conversation about what is a nation state and how are these 
political unions and things of that nature created without talking about the right of self-government, having people determine how they're governed. Do they want to be a part of this larger body or do they not? Yeah. So you, you have that dividing line at World War II where at the end of it, you had around 54 recognized fully sovereign countries around the world. Uh, by the end, about, about the middle of the 1990s, you were at 192, and that number continues to grow. So there has been an evolution of, of thought uh, and research, uh, both academic and legal, related to the issue, the concepts around a nation state, and particularly that of the word that we have known as secession. So you know, where, where we end up right now, kind of in this first part of the 21st century, is that secession is too broad of a term to describe every type of self-determination or every type or every act of self-determination that exists in the world. They're all very unique and, and very circumstantial. So uh, a good example is if uh, Houston, if Harris County wanted to withdraw from Texas, that would be a secession because Harris County is a political subdivision. It's an administrative subdivision of the state, Texas mm -hmm. being a recognized state. Mm -hmm. But Texas withdrawing from the union is not technically secession under the current understanding of the word. So if the United States wanted to pull out of NATO, would that be a secession? Was the withdrawal of the UK from the European Union a secession? And, and I think where, where we're seeing academic thought, legal thought, and, and even really sort of popular thought mm. is that uh, it really depends, Texas independence or Texas is secession if you believe that Texas is just merely a province of the United States, right? And therein, I think, lies the, the ultimate friction uh, that we have here is that there are people, particularly those that are part of the permanent political class in Washington, D.C., that view uh, states as, as merely provinces of a federal super state. Right. And if that's the case, then secession is probably a term that would work for them. But under the understanding of the founders and the framers of the United States, under the understanding of the people who uh, were at the helm in Texas when Texas joined the Union, uh, this is not secession. This is officially withdrawing our membership and reasserting our status as an independent nation. And if, if that is the case, there's so much to undo. And you go through, let me see if I can share this. This will be for our YouTube people here. I'll just share the screen. So if we go here, I was reading this and I've been picking through your website. Um, didn't the Supreme Supreme Court declare secession unconstitutional? This is a brilliant read, and it gives um, the actual case notes and gets you into the meat of it. Um, and this is all, all this is, this entire case from what I'm reading, all of this is to basically protect the federal government. And that's not how we were to... That's that's not how the the United States was formed. The United States of America are all of these states that are united, but not particularly as one. And so when we talk about the federal government, the federal government doesn't have any more rights than the states do. And that's what we've seen over the over the years. Now. In regard to each state having its own constitution. As of now. I am in this direct 
ploy campaign to try and get Greg Abbott to say the word and to declare an invasion on the border. And he has yet to do it. And he, you know, he keeps grinning and smiling and pointing and sending people on buses places. But that, I think, is the line in the sand that he will not draw. And I've read and, and tried to study and tried to find where he can just say it. And then we would get we would. Well, we probably wouldn't get, but we would be owed and the federal government would be obligated to assist us. And obviously they're not doing that right now. But have you studied that at all? Can you can you shed some light on that or some of your expertise diving into the Texas Constitution the way that you have? Absolutely. Look, when um, when we were together last, uh, when I was in San Antonio, um, I you know I didn't get much of a chance to talk about it, but I did talk about it on the campaign trail a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a a core element of the argument that the Texas Nationalist Movement has made for Texas for many many years. And just yeah. to give you an ex- just to give you an idea uh, of the truth of that, the idea for Greg Abbott to bus illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C. was actually a plan that we unveiled 12 years ago uh, and even had donors lined up to privately pay for it to bring attention to uh, the, the border issue, you know, the issues related to alien transfer and exit. I mean, you know, it was a, that's how far back this goes for us. Mm-hmm. But that, <clears throat> that being said, Greg Abbott doesn't need to declare an invasion. He just needs to you know, I mean, there's not, there's not some sort of formal process, Yeah. but, but what it does is it, it effectively puts the federal government in a position to either very publicly do their job or not do their job, which is protect the border. Now we understand that that crowd, uh, the globalist crowd has virtually no respect for the concept of a nation state and therefore has no respect for borders, uh, from the federal viewpoint, everything is working out quite well. Right. This is this is going according. This is their. Yeah, this is their planned chaos. But, you know, Greg Abbott's apprehension. I mean, let's bring this back down to our governance here. Greg Abbott's apprehension is is all rooted in the fact that since he was attorney general, he's been running for president of the United States. Yeah. Um, You know, even when he comes out of CPAC last weekend uh, with pretty much the same number of straw poll votes that Liz Cheney got. You know, I mean, that's just how, how bad it is. Right. Um, but, but he's, that's never been far from his mind and where, where I think his apprehension is, is that if he hits the state of Texas and the safety of our citizens against the federal system, the federal system will choose wrongly. And the next step will be the step that we want. The people of Texas will, will all resolve around the idea of what we've said all along, which is if we ever want to get control of immigration and our border, the only way we're ever going to do that is to become a self-governing independent nation and do it just like everybody else does around the world, but to take control of that. So, you know, his apprehension, and I referred to him in an interview yesterday as governor Winsock, um, he's going to, he's going to pull the issue, right? You can use that. It's not trademarked or copyrighted. So no, um, I heard I heard another one. I heard an I heard another one along the same lines as that. Um, but I'm not going to say it. But it was good. that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, but 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 you get the point. But he's right? lo- so, he's he's losing his. I mean he's he's sixty he's sixty four sixty five years old. Um. I mean he's going to run against Trump. 
2024? I mean, that's just political suicide, if you ask me, because you're going up against somebody who actually makes decisions and does things when they think about it. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's mean tweets and repulsive remarks and that kind of thing. Right. But hey, the guy does stuff and he makes sure that it gets done and he makes right. sure that there are people in place that can do the job. The thing with Abbott, I'm just so I'm so concerned that it's so political. It's so it's it's not for us. It's for him. And that's what disappoints me so bad. Well, look, my disappointment with Greg Abbott goes goes way back, back to when he was attorney general. And, you know, I tell the story in the book and I uh, actually told it in an interview the other day. Uh, I don't tell it, tell it often. But uh, several sessions back, back when uh, David Dewhurst was lieutenant governor, right? Um, we we had a sit down with him on the opening day of the legislative session, uh, introduced him to these concepts that were quite new to him, uh, most commonly referred to as Article 1, Sections 1 and 2 of the Texas Constitution. That's a whole other story. Um, but, you know, we, we taught, you know, he wanted to know what we were, what we were trying to do. He wanted more detail on this yeah, idea yeah. of putting the vote to the people of Texas. And, and he was, he was conditionally on board. He was like, look, I'll help champion this. He said, but my, my issue here is I know this is going to have a, a, there will be a legal fight on this. And I want to make sure that we've got the attorney general, uh, the attorney general's buy-in to help us fight this thing. At the time, the attorney general was Greg Abbott. So that rocked along for a couple of weeks. And then Dewhurst said, well, look, we can't move forward because Abbott won't move. He, he won't touch it. And so our, obviously our question was, well, what is his apprehension? You know, nobody knows more about this particular issue than we do. What can we do? It's like, you're not going to be able to do anything. Yeah. His, his, his reluctance was not based on any principle. It was not based on any belief that it's unconstitutional, illegal. That was not his objection. His concern was how it would affect his campaign as he was getting ready to run for governor when Rick Perry was going to step down to run for uh, run for president. Everybody knew Perry was getting ready to go. Abbott was already keeping the, you know, spinning up the, the wheels of his political machine. Yeah. And he was not opposed to it on principle. He was opposed to it on political expediency. And that is really that that was the moment that told me everything I need to know about who he yeah. is. Yeah. You know, I've had some conversations with people here in San Antonio about um, running for city council district one. I live in district one. Um, and I said to them, and this is two different groups. And I said to both of them, I said, if I run for city council, then that makes me a politician. And then I have to be a politician. I can't be over here on this screen, writing my things, tweeting my things. I would have to represent all of district one. I said, so, you know, I would never do that because I like, I like poking and I like having my opinions, but I also like having my principles and my values stick with me and trying to champion those on, you know, a, a daily hourly basis. And the thing that really upsets me the most is that there are people like Kelly Perry down in the border. Um, there are state reps that are afraid to go against what Greg Abbott is saying. There are um, state reps and state senators that they're 
you know, their political, they're thinking politically instead of thinking for their people first. And that just terribly disappoints me. And it, it makes me, it makes me wonder, you know, what it is that not what it is that, that we're doing all, all of this for, but why do we have these people on the ballot? Why do we have these types of people that are vying for our vote, not for the job that they need to do? And I think that that's a, I think that's, I think that's a distinction that we all need to make when, when we go to the ballot, um, when we go to vote and, you know, people talk about, people talk about, you know, wasting a vote and it's not a, it's not wasting a vote if you're voting for something. Now in the last, in the last few weeks, I've been doing, um, some recording of people's voting records and it's very, um, it's very eye-opening when you pull someone's voting record and you know them personally, and I'm a precinct chair, so I have access to that data. And you go to talk to them and you ask them why that they're a registered Democrat. <laughs> and they say, and these are people in Bear County. I, I don't have access to any other any other counties, but they say, I always vote for the less for the per- I always vote against the Democrat in the primary that's winning. So, for example, in 2016, people were voting again for voting for whoever the other uh, Democrats were on the primary ballot in 2016. So they weren't voting for Hillary. They were voting against Hillary for some no name or whatever, instead of voting for Trump or Perry or Cruz or whoever was on the ballot. And that just that right there, just it really makes me wonder, like, where where did we get so far off track and where where did we get so confused about what it is that we're trying to do? Because in my opinion, what it is that we're trying to do is the pursuit of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there are most people out there, especially on the left, that they don't want that. They don't want people to have a right to life, a right to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They want to make us scared to even go to the grocery store. Right. And you have you have people like, um, and it may it may just be the articles and the videos that I'm watching, but it seems like to me DeSantis is the guy who is making the decisions and having the right information and making the decision not for his political life and his marketing and his campaign, but he's making good decisions for the people of Florida. And, you know, if anybody ever sends it to to Greg Abbott, I want him to know that I don't think he's making the right decisions for Texas. He's making the right decisions for himself. And that just, it, it, it makes me sad. Um, So if, if this is put to a vote, how, well, how do we get this to a vote? How do we get the state legislator and the state senators to say, we're going to vote to leave the union? Well, if in this, it's an interesting tie-in to what we were just talking about. So if, if they are moted by political expediency, then we have to motivate them by political expediency. So it has to become the politically expedient thing to do. And 
this has been really part and parcel of our plan since the foundation of the organization in 2005 is to build popular support uh, for the purpose of making it the politically expedient thing to do. Uh, good news is we have the popular support to get there. We just are now at the point where we've got to break through. First breakthrough came during the last session. Uh, Biederman filed House Bill 1359. James White signed on to it. I mean, it had had plenty of, of muscle behind it, uh, at least from our standpoint. But now we have to expand that. And, and we expand that by making it, the, as I said, not to be repetitive, but making it the politically expedient thing for them to do. Mm-hmm. They need to understand that this issue is not going to go away. So, you know, that led to uh, the work that we did at the Republican convention, you know, arguably, I mean, it's inarguably the dominant political party in Texas, Yeah. but it, it led to the work that we did there to get not just one, but two planks on the platform calling for a Texas vote, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one, one is date certain, one is not, right? That's really the difference between the two. Uh, but right on the heels of that, we had uh, the third party polling hit from Survey USA that said, if it goes to a vote tomorrow, 66% of uh, likely te- of likely voters here in Texas would vote in favor of it. Yeah. So we're we're there. You know, I mean, we're we're at that point now where the electeds need to understand that the people of Texas are are tired of groaning under the weight of 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules and regulations administered by two and a half million unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to vote on this issue. At the end of the day, people will vote how they vote when it goes to the polls. But at a minimum, every elected official should support our rights under Article One, Section Two, and put the thing on the ballot and let the people of Texas decide. Right. How how are you positioning yourself going into this legislative session? Have you done anything well, prior to? Are you doing something now? Oh yeah, yeah. We're look. Our we, we found out a long time ago that the next legislative session starts uh, on the last day of the previous legislative session. Right. right, and then there. What's the? There's some date in September. There's a September. I want to say twelfth, or maybe it's November. Maybe it's November twelfth. Some dates yeah. for submission of of like to a committee or something. Yeah, Tell me they, what that. so. What most people don't understand um, that are just kind of casually involved in this, they think that the legislative session starts in January, and yeah. it officially, that's when it starts. Right. That's when the parties start. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a whole other discussion, right? <laughs> Talking about the frat house down there. Um, but what most people don't understand is uh, like two weeks after the general election, what you have is there is a window open for what's called pre-filing of bills. There okay? you go. So, uh, legislators have the opportunity at that point to go ahead and submit legislation. Of course, a lot of it gets submitted. It never goes anywhere or they submit preliminary language with the intention of, you know, replacing the language with the committee substitute, but they just want to get it early in the process. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's what we're working toward. We, we know what our marks are. Uh, we've already been having conversations with legislators, uh, ones that we have relationships with that survived redistricting. Uh, and you know, obviously our, our people are going to spend all that time between now and the opening session, building support in the districts for this. We, you know, we made a conscious decision last session to not spend so much time directing everybody to Austin, but directing them to the legislators in their districts, because 
Uh, these guys don't want to, these guys don't want pressure back home. They can survive pressure all day long in Austin because they just get in their car and they go back home right, and, right. and we wanted them to experience it, not just in Austin, but also at home as well. So, uh, we're going to continue to run that strategy. Uh, it's only, you know, probably 10 X, uh, of what they got last time. So, uh, I would suggest maybe the people that are in charge of the phone system there at the Capitol, uh, might want to do some expansion before the start. <laughs> there you go. So who are your, who are your state legislators, your state senators? your representatives that well, my, you're talking about the ones that are on board or are you asking yes, about yes. mine personally, because no, 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 that's embarrassing ones, in and of one, itself. <laughs> the ones that are on board. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't, we've always had a policy to not disclose legislator okay. uh, conversations okay. uh, until they're made public. And that's just, look, that's just been part and parcel of developing the relationships. And it's why we've been able to get legislation done. So um, you know, when I will say that if you look at the legislators that were involved in some of our previous legislation, mm -hmm. like 1359 or monument protection, or, you know, any of these others, that yeah. would be a, a really good hint as to who we're, who we're working with. Good. So can I ask you a favor? They are invited to September 7th, the border education summit that Kelly Perry and, Renewing America are putting on at the Capitol Auditorium, and it's for all state legislators. It's uh, the Capitol Auditorium only seats 350 people, so they're trying to get as many state legislators there. They'll take a staffer if they if they have to. Um, minimal press. And what Kelly Perry is telling me is that it's going to be, it is not going to be a pleasant experience. So those that are in the fight that already know what's going on. It's not going to be a surprise, but some of these legis legislators that really don't know what the hell is going on down in the border counties, they're going to be very, very surprised. Um, but you know, they know what's going on because every time there's a photo opportunity, they put on their disaster ready yes. polos that are custom embroidered <laughs> and go down there with a video camera. But so, they don't, you know. but they don't see what is really going on. They uh, just go down there for the photo op. That's right. They don't they don't see these they don't see these people flying through the desert and being ejected from cars and pieces of them on the side of the road. They don't see that firsthand. And it's nope. just so sad that there's a system set up that enables that and that encourages that kind of, you know, human smuggling. Um, tell me about tell me about the line in the sand book. Cause I, I just got through reading Texas and I'm about to start reading line in the sand. How did well, you, the fact you actually got a copy of line in the sand is impressive. Why I got because it from, I got it from, um, use the used bookstore right here on Broadway. Half price. It's been, books. Out, of, it's been out of print. Half forever. price books. Yeah. I got it, I got it for $3. There are copies of that thing, uh, going on eBay and, and Amazon occasionally for like 1500 or 2000 bucks. <laughs> I got it I for mean, three bucks. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, so, you know, you may, you may have you a little gold mine there. Right. Um, I did I'm, not know that. I'm spending money. Yeah. It has some, it has some little dog ears and I don't, I'm at somebody else's house and I don't have it with me, but yeah. Yeah. So line in the sand, you know, I wrote that back in, in 2011. Mm-hmm. And, and I wrote it because very much for the same reason that I wrote Texit, right? I wrote the Texit book 
uh, because we, you know, get inundated with questions about Texas. You know, what, you know, how people talk about that it's um, the opposition tries to marginalize uh, the issue. They, you know, they can happen. Project fear. What, what about this? You know, I mean, that's what the Texas book was about. But Line in the Sand was a, a little, little, obviously a little earlier in our journey as an organization. Mm-hmm. But it came about because people did not, um, it was really about mindset, right? People had not thought like Texas nationalists in a very long time. And, and on, oddly, that mindset doesn't, you know, it didn't expire when Texas joined the union. Um, you know, we were, I guess, effectively probably two generations removed from the vast majority of Texans thinking in that regard, you know, taking Texas as a nation. And so, uh, it was really uh, about that uh, the the principles of Texas nationalism, what its origins are, uh, the concept of of Texas as a nation. I talk about um, you know something we talked about a moment ago, the, that concept of the differences between a nation, a state, and a country. Um, you know, I, I, I one of the most controversial things I put in the book was um the 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 assertion that texas is a nation but the united states of america is not a nation uh that was that was extremely uh i got a lot of backlash over that but you can't argue with the founders and the framers of the constitution or the book definitions of things so yeah. um but that's really what what it was about is you know if if texas if texas explains sort of the mechanics um Line in the sand explains kind of the the soul of it and, and helps you understand really, I would say almost unconsciously why Texans are drawn to this idea of independence. Well, and that's kind of the way that we started. And I think if you, if you, I mean, granted, if you grow up in Texas, you take Texas history. I don't think if you grow up in Iowa that you take Iowa history. Okay. That was creepy because I literally was thinking Iowa as well. So you're, I, mean, I was we're just on thinking the right in the now. middle. I know. I, yeah. I literally was thinking Iowa. There That's wild. And yeah. it's this, I mean, this, this is, you know, this is a, this is a taboo word these days, but it's kind of this indoctrination into this, this Texas independence that we are, we are number one, we are the Lone Star State. So goes Texas, so goes the nation, so goes the nation, so goes the world. And it's kind of this, um, you know, your, your term self, self self-determination. I mean, if there's anybody, you know, that's, if there's any state in the United States, it's Texas where you can be as big and as bold and as brave as you want to. Um, and it's it it lends itself to being, um, you know, brash and bossy and all all the b words. But it also is about um, just having this this great pride for where did you come from and your people and your neighbors and your community. And we're losing that, and that makes it 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 does. I mean, I'm 49 years old. Um, you know, everybody talks about how many generations there's been, you know, I've, I've been here for six and, you know, we didn't start off that great, but we may have even manipulated and, and been corrupt at, at one point, but I think we're doing a good job now as a family. And it just, it hurts me so bad to see, you know, others, others in our community treating each other just, just so horribly. And I think it comes from, 
it, it, I think it has to do with the swamp that we've created, you know, in DC that somehow the federal government is everybody's um, that, well, I should say this, that businesses have become a third arm of the government and therefore they are our charitable cause instead of us actually being um, called or being, you know, asked directly to give to our neighbors in our community, the federal government takes from us to give to others. And so therefore we have no incentive to give. And I think, I mean, I think if there's anybody to, to basically just dismantle, rebuild and do it right, I think it would be Texas. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, you hit on really sort of the, the fundamental cultural shift, right. And, and, and really two things in that regard, one, one about charity, but before that, something you talked about was culture and any culture that does not perpetuate itself will be subsumed by a culture that will perpetuate itself. Right. And so Texas has this, this history of, you know, caring for your neighbors, right? All, all of the things that the people that hate Texas say we're not about, right? That, yeah. that, they, that they hate us for are the things that we've always been wonderful at. Hurricane Harvey was a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Nobody checked your voter registration. Nobody asked you where you went to church. Nobody asked you anything. Texans jumped in and helped Texans long before FEMA ever got involved in the situation. And of course, when FEMA came in, they screwed everything up because that's yeah. what they do. Right. Yeah. Um, and I can speak to that because I lived down here in hurricane alley. So, um, but you know, it, it really gets down to, to the charitable aspect of this. Right. And, yeah. and unfortunately for many of us, it has become an abrogation of responsibility. If, if we put it off on the federal government, and say the federal government will take care of this. Well, then we don't have to look at it. We don't have right. to, it's not our problem. We can scapegoat the federal government or the state government or the local government, whoever it is, mm-hmm. <clears throat> we can scapegoat them and go, well, why aren't they doing something about it? Abrogating our responsibility in this. And, and ultimately I think responsibility is at the very heart of every one of the arguments, everything we have talked about today. Those people that do not want Texas to become a self-governing independent nation is because they are ultimately afraid of the con- the responsibility that comes with self-government. Yeah. You know, yeah. why, why is it that we keep getting these crappy politicians uh, elected to office? Well, because, you know, they're good old boys and it would be really difficult for us to give an extra $20 to a candidate who is firm, who has firmly held principles that will not compromise. You know, it's so hard. It's a lot of responsibility to go out and knock a door the first time and talk to your neighbors Mm -hmm. about an issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what, what it really is about this abrogation of responsibility. And for us, I think the people of Texas, we're, we're in a, in a spot right now where this has gone on for so long that we're going to have to step up and take the ultimate responsibility, reclaim that right of self-government and all the responsibility that goes along with it. And, you know, it, it, we, we may do, we, we may do poorly. I think as Texans, we will probably do phenomenally well. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, because for the first time in generations, our destiny is in our hands, the ability to punch our own ticket, to write our own future and not have it written for us. And, and that is so valuable and so precious. It deserves every bit of attention that we can give it. Let me ask you about how your organization is 
organized. Can I say that? How are you? Do you have chapters? Do you have districts? How do you, how do you get around? How do you mobilize? Yeah. I mean, it's, it look, it's typical political advocacy, right? So um, we have a national leadership team that is comprised of, um, you know, an executive team, various departments. Uh, We are divided into the 31 Senate districts and each Senate district. uh, Any of the cities that are there can have local groups, uh, each headed by a local coordinator and a deputy local coordinator and that they maintain our field operations. Uh, but primarily what we do is we operate in a cycle of act, organize, or inform, organize, and act. I got it backwards. Um, but where, you know, it's really for us, it's about making sure that everyone stays informed, but it's not eat, greet, meet, retreat, right? If you, if, if we wanted just information, we'd say, go buy some encyclopedias, right? Go, go down to half price books and get that Microsoft Encarta CD-ROM. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, well, that's a blast from the past, right? Uh, but it's it's not just about raw knowledge, right? We have to organize. And for that, we knew at the inception of the organization, we had to be very organized, highly disciplined. Uh, and so, you know, we had, we're very regimented, very structured. And then beyond that, it's about acting, right? Mm-hmm. You can be as informed. You can have, you know, you could go stu- like you're studying to pass the SATs. You can be organized and people can have titles and everything can be regimented. But at the end of the day, if you don't do something with it and go act, it's all pointless. Yes, I completely agree. I'm actually experiencing some of that myself. Do you, um, do you target county parties, county Republican parties, county libertarian parties or anything like that? I asked that well, question because I have a, I have a meeting tonight at, at headquarters at the Bear well, County I mean, GOP. Uh, I mean, as far as targeting goes, look, we, we interface with Texas voters where they are. Right. Okay. And so I, our, our universe is really Texas mm-hmm. voters. And, and the reason we don't kind of go in and specifically do that, uh, you know, say pick out, say a, a demographic or, you know, some people of political persuasion is what we have found out is that ultimately when it comes down to the issue of self-government, the, the typical labels that people would use are pretty meaningless. Yeah. Um, that was pretty evident in 2014 when that Reuters Ipsos poll came in, um, right around the time of the Scottish independence referendum that showed 54% of Republicans, half of independent voters and, a, and over a third of Democrats supported Texas becoming an independent nation. Wow. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we have such an easy time with outreach in urban areas that the Republican party generally would not go do outreach in or go touch uh, because we can take the positive economic message, very similar to why Trump was able to make inroads in places like the Rio Grande Valley or the inner cities of Detroit or places like that, because the the message itself, that the path forward really transcends all of the normal dividing labels. So, you know, for us, um, you know, do we interface? Absolutely. You know, we, we have a, a ton of people that are in the TNM that are precinct chairs, county chairs, yeah, SREC yeah. members, uh, but not just them. I mean, we we want to talk and take this message to every Texan. It's 66% support. At this point, it's not about convincing anyone. It's about finding the convinced. Yeah. And getting it on the ballot. So, and at first it has to go through committee and then it has to get through, um, not committee. It doesn't have to do that, does it? 
It, it will. Yeah. It's going to have will? to go through the normal process. So, so it would be, it would be a referendum. It wouldn't be, it would be a referendum vote or a resolution. Well, it would be. So if we're talking about the, the Texas independence referendum act, mm-hmm. the here's the, here's the challenge. And, and I think it's important. We touch on this article one, section two says that the people have at all times an able right to alter reform, abolish their government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay, that's the last part of Article One, Section Two. The problem is, is that we have really no statutory mechanism to do what it is that we want to do, which is put this question in front of the people of Texas in, in a real and binding way on a ballot. Okay, so the the only mechanism available for a citizen initiative is, oddly enough, Texas Election Code One Seven Two Point Zero Eight Eight, which would place it on a party's primary, but then you're just locked into one party right. and you can do it by petition. So we know that ultimately, just like it ha- did in Scotland, just like it did in UK, just like it did in so many other places, we have to follow this legal process to place it on the ballot. And that means that we need legislation passed that will definitively put the question on the ballot and have concrete actions that have to be taken once that's done. So uh, we have proposed legislation, uh, draft legislation on our website. People go to texitnow.org or tnm.me. Uh, they can they can find that draft legislation. And it's actually in the book, too, the entire text of the draft. Um, but last session, uh, State Representative Kyle Biederman f- submitted the bill to be filed. Uh, the Ledge Council made some markups and changes on it that we were not entirely satisfied with, but we went ahead and got it filed, hoping to make a committee substitute. Uh, that being said, it will have to go through the normal bill process, just like any other piece of legislation, so that uh, when it passes the following general election, we will have, which, you know, after a legislative session, the general election is dedicated to constitutional amendments. There will be an extra thing on the ballot asking the question, should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation? Wow. So... 66%. And that poll was done when? Uh, it was released at the beginning of last month. Uh, matter of fact, if you go to our website, there's a, a link to there? it and a link to the cross tab. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and what's, what's amazing to us is when you pull out the, even down to the, you know, the not likely voters, uh, mm-hmm. it only shaves off about five percentage points. So when you lump any, anyone who can fog a mirror and may or may not have voted at any point in their lives, it, it still drops down to 60%. So um, it's it's still just a phenomenal, but it's what we've said all along. If it goes to a vote tomorrow, it doesn't win by a little, it wins by a lot. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this, this, this is the message that we have taken to every single person that's out there, that when, when we uh, talk about this issue, people can what if this to death, right? Mm-hmm. Who's Dandy Don Meredith, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. People can ask all the minutiae, but but the important question that I think everyone needs to answer is this. Imagine for a moment if Texas was already a self-governing independent nation, right? In every respect, just like all those around the world, we had control over our own immigration and border policy. We had our own military, our own currency, our own embassies and passports, our own trade. I mean, everything that 200 other self-governing independent nations around the world have. Imagine that was us right now. And instead of talking about Texas, we were talking about whether or not we should give up our independence and join the union. Knowing everything you know about the federal government right now, today, would you vote to join the union? Not me. 
Well, and if you wouldn't vote to join, then why in the world would you ever vote to stay? Right. And I think we're doing that with with each. I think with each passing election, when we when we elect these people that are placed, that are bought in, that are, you know, they're they're assigned a position. They're not really voted in. They're, they're um, not elections. They're selections. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, OK, so let's fast forward and Texas passes. Then what? Well, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> uh, I I, I've, I've been doing this since August 24th, 1996. I'm due a break. Okay. Okay. So you take a vacation and then what? No, it's, you know, all, all kidding aside, what happens is, and one of the biggest misconceptions is, is that the day after Texas, Texas, you know, the, after the Texas vote, Texas is out of the union and, right. and that's not how it works. The first thing you have to have is you have to have an expression of political will. That's what the vote delivers. Okay. With that, what happens is we go through essentially four phases uh, post-Texit vote that have to be addressed by our existing government, right? Everything is as it is until it changes. And so the four issues that have to be addressed are constitutional issues, statutory issues, international covenants, treaties, and agreements, and then finally the negotiated issues. Uh, constitutional issues, um, just to kind of give some examples, probably not going to want to call our chief executive a governor anymore, probably going to be a president, you know, th- changing names. Right. But there are some actual structural things that we have to consider as part of our Constitution, right? We don't have to draft an entirely new one, but we do need to make some amendments. Right now, there is no provision constitutionally for a function of the government to deal with the international affairs, right? As part of our membership in the union, that was delegated to the federal government. So we will have to constitutionally make a change to say, take our secretary of state, if we wanted to use the, uh, the U S model or whatever. Um, but, but to, to enable that additionally, you move into the statutory issues. Um, The good news is, is that there's effectively an analog for everything that the federal government does at the state level, right? From a, you know, a national government perspective. So we already have the infrastructure there, but statutes will have to be changed. We're going to have to rip out all kinds of statutes dealing with the federal government. Uh, But we will have to uh, expand some agencies. We'll have to deal with some funding issues related to those. So there are some statutory things that are going to need to be done. Uh, the third thing, which is international treaties, covenants, and agreements, the government of Texas will want to sign on to some of those. They're very innocuous. We could actually claim by what's called right of succession. Uh, we could claim, um, that we're already covered under those agreements, but I think it's important for Texas to, to execute its own, uh, its own agreements and, and they're innocuous, right? We're not talking about negotiating trade into the USMCA or anything like that. Uh, we're talking about things such as the international convention that covers international air traffic, right? Things of that nature. Yeah. So you, you've got those issues that will have to be dealt with. And, the fi- and finally, you get to the first time that we really have to interface in a real way with the federal government, and that's the negotiation phase. It's where we talk about things like the federal debt, uh, the, uh, tex- the money that Texans have put into the Medicare trust funds, the disposition of uh, military, uh, bases. I mean, there, there are many things I say many, there, there are a handful of things, a basket of things that will have to be handled in the negotiation phase, and but that's, not insurmountable. Right. I mean, and that, that's the thing. I mean, you can, 
you can file a grievance, you can, you know, file an injunction, you can make us, you can draw a line in the sand. But then once, once you have put your foot down and you say, okay, this is not going to be the way that it's going to be anymore. You have to then do the work to back that up. So I'm glad to, to hear that you guys have that part figured out because that's the part that's the, I think, I think getting it done is the easy part. It's managing it behind the scenes. So you don't have this, this revolt afterwards going, you know, I thought we were going to get all this great stuff. And it's like, no, yeah. we're going to, we're going to get all this stuff and it may not be great, but it's all going to be ours and we're not going to have to share it anymore. Yeah. We get that's to, you know, and that's, thing. well, look, this is one of the things I tell people all the time um, is that, you know, people have accused me of being naive and it's like, no, I'm not naive. I'm a student of uh, world history and current world politics. I understand how things work in the world. And unfortunately, most people do not, but I just encourage them to, to do this as an exercise. Pull out a globe, spin it around, put your finger on any landmass that's not Antarctica and realize those people have figured out all the things that people here are worried about in a post-Texit transition. Yeah. They figured out banking. They figured out borders. They figured out defense. They figured out those, you know, currency. They figured out those things. So what what you're telling me is, is that if people say that, well, somehow it's just insurmountable for us, what they're effectively saying is there are a hundred, you know, 199 other self-governing independent nations out there that are smarter than we are that seem to be able to get their crap together and somehow we can't, right? The last time I heard the attitude that we had was if you want something done, tell a Texan it can't be done. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, that's just, you know, we're the ninth largest economy in the world. I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to work it, work yeah. it out. And we've got some, and it's, it's not yeah. a, well, I was just going to say, and it's not a pig and a poke either, right? If people understood even in the status quo structurally, how close we are to a self-governing independent on things like currency, most mm -hmm. people don't understand. Uh, how close we are to actually having our own currency. When uh, you, you remember the Texas Gold Depository Act, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The big headline, we, we helped push that thing across the finish line. We were very, we were very big on that one. And not just because the headline was Texas is getting its own Fort Knox. That, that was cool. We liked that. We believe Texas gold ought to be in Texas precious metals that are part of our sovereign wealth fund ought to be here in Texas. But right. the thing that, that really sold us on that legislation was this. There was a provision in that legislation that directed the comptroller to establish a system of electronic transaction denominated by deposits of precious metal in the depository. Now, that's a lot of legalese to say that it was that the comptroller was directed to utilize the depository to essentially create a proto currency that was pegged by the value of the precious metal in the depository. Right. That was she, that, that should have been the takeaway. Yeah. Right. That should have been our chain, but most people don't, don't understand that's the case, but we are so close on so many of these issues that all we have to do once we reclaim our right of self-government is just close those very small gaps. And then we're there. Excellent. Thank you, Daniel. Very enlightening. Well, thank you. I'm all, yeah. I'm all riled up now. Hey, that's better than those 60 seconds uh, at the candidate. Forums, hey, I know, right? man. But you knew what I had to wrangle with that night. Oh, so. I, well, look, you look, 60 seconds was four times as much as I got in Corsicana. So I was, I was glad <laughs> to get it. There you go. All right, Daniel. Thank you so much.
Hey, thank you. I, I appreciate it. All right. And uh, let's do this again. We will. We will. This will. I. I think I want this to be a series. I think as the legislature draw, draws nearer and nearer, and then we get some of these committees formed, and then we hear some of the things that are coming out of Austin, especially after January. I want to. I want to come back and visit with you again because I know you'll have more for us. It, we're going to be very busy. <laughs> Good. All right. So I'm going to stop the recording. Hopefully.